This is Steve Stein. Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. On the chopping board this week, the advertising industry. Depending on what you include when talking about advertising, research, marketing, public relations, and creative, it's a U.S. $500 billion to $1 trillion industry. It's also a sector ripe for disruption. Here to talk to me about it is Ian Chapman Banks. He's a physicist by training, but I've known him through the years as a bit of a maverick executive who's never shied away from a thorny commercial or operational problem. It comes, therefore, as no surprise that Ian has set his sights on advertising, a segment slow to embrace technology and, as a result, destined for consequences. We kicked off our conversation discussing the evolution of advertising and how AI is set to lead the third wave, a moment in time where human behavior is deconstructed with the aid of big data, sophisticated algorithms, and a touch of intuition. It's one thing to appeal to consumer tastes and preferences. It's another thing to predict it. Here's my conversation with Ian. So I, I want to ask you, um, you've been a corporate guy, you've been in the, the, the mobile industry, you've been in, been in semiconductors, you've worked across big organizations, small organizations, and here you are late in life, not too late, by the way, you know, you're looking good, you know, looking great, looking sharp, but you, you do feel to me like one of these guys late in life who says, and you've been an entrepreneur before, so let me be clear about this, but you are breaking into new territory with AI as an entrepreneur, and you're primarily going after the advertising industry. Why? The size of the global advertising business for everything is $1 trillion. In addition to that, there's another four or $500 billion, what we call trade marketing budget, which is mainly owned by the likes of Amazon, the e-commerce companies in terms of sales promotions. So look at the total size of the market. It is one of the biggest industries. So let me talk, let me, for people who may not know the advertising industry, we're talking about the amount of money spent by corporations to promote their products on all platforms, whether it's billboards or internet or television. Absolutely. Okay. It's the total spend, include all the advertising industry, include all their costs of all the creative it's the total cost of serving an ad to somebody somewhere at some time and and the way it's been done for years you know anyone who's watched Mad Men will get a sense well you could walk in to a creative agency they you tell them what product you have what you're trying to do they come up back with some idea on how to win over the consumers and they then post it for a period of time and take their proceeds yeah, exactly. exactly. The, the mad men, kind of, you get a bunch of creative guys in a dark room drinking a bottle of whiskey and they come back in two weeks with, you know, the, what they call in the industry, the big idea. Yeah. The whiskey drinking is still going on now, <laughs> but now, and it may be not such a dark room, and now it's about technology, isn't yeah. it? Absolutely. So what we went about thinking about and how we think about it, if you, if, so if you, let's, let's just say it's a trillion dollars all in. Now, if you break it down into what's happening is that the total size of the digital market globally now in terms of digital companies, digital advertising spend is about, the whole ecosystem is about $400 billion. Now, let's say within that $400 billion, the part of the market where we play and other AI companies would be about $200 billion in total. And that $200 billion is occupied by people like uh, Facebook and Google uh, in Japan, companies like Yahoo, and they probably occupy, let's say, about 120 billion of that. So, so about 60 to 70 percent of yeah. the 200 addressable, 200 billion addressable amount. Ex absolutely. And what's interesting about this market is it's growing at 25 percent per annum. The digital side. Yes. So, what's going to happen is we can do the mathematics. We so we can say within 10 years, this market's going to be worth six, seven, eight hundred billion dollars, pure digital, digital ads, digital creative, 
the digital world. Now, what's very interesting and, about... And Ian, sorry, that's because we're actually displacing the traditional ad, the yeah. billboards and the television and everything else. Yeah. So it's just basically the pie, the shape of the pie is changing or the, the carving up of the pie is, ma- is changing. Absolutely. So in other words, this is one of the fastest growing industries in the world. Digital advertising, digital marketing. Now, what's very interesting about it is it's actually very difficult to do. It's hard. Why is it difficult? Well, when you go digital, in the old days, what we call linear TV, uh, you come up with a very nice ad, uh, you run it on TV, and something happens. Maybe sales go up, maybe sales goes down, but that was the process. Now with digital advertising, you've got to think about your data, your first-party data, your second-party data, your third-party data, and then what are the insights, and then taking those insights into behaviors, and then designing the ad, and then programmatically, if you like, systematically deciding how, where, and when to place those ads. So it's the difference between shotgun versus sniper rifle. The idea is that with general, you, you, there's no feedback loop. You throw something out there, uh, people who are watching a television program may or may not take note of the advertisement and, and action it. Whereas you're talking about customizing to a point of one and getting there to the point where you know precisely what somebody wants, even in a given time, day or night. A human being can't do that. A thousand human beings can't do it. You actually need a machine to understand the human behavior. So now we're moving away from the days of Ipsos where they do a market focus group of five people, model it up to the population. That no longer works. You have to be able to take a census of the digital activity and have a machine to break that down into different types of segments. So actually, digital marketing is harder to do, much harder. More pieces of this puzzle. Yeah, as I mentioned, just to place an ad in what's called a programmatic, programmatic ecosystem, just to put an ad on a banner site, let's say like straighttimes.com or cnn.com, there is 2,000 ad tech companies actually involved in that whole process. And each of those ad tech companies take a little bit of the pie and to build the ecosystem. So if you think about it, there's $10 being spent on advertising, maybe 6 or $7 goes to the ad tech ecosystem in terms of verification, third-party data, uh, viewability. So it's actually quite complex to do well. So lots of people are touching it between the point of, of origination and the point of release. Absolutely. And if you were able to deploy AI to take all of these ecosystems and consolidate it, then the clients, who are the customers, let's say the Fords, the Coca-Colas, the Mercedes, the banks, they would then start to see a better return on their investment because at the end of the day, if you can complete a digital journey and someone buys digitally, you do know a lot about them. And also you know that they've purchased. It's very difficult to run an ad for Mercedes on TV and then see that linkage between going ashore and buying a Mercedes or acquiring a credit card. So be able to understand the whole ecosystem from conception through to, let's call it conversion in in the the world of, of, of clients, uh, that's the holy grail. Mm. So you mentioned earlier Google and Facebook mm. and them pretty much owning 60-70% of that digital ad space. The reason that uh, organizations are going to them is because they have the profile information on their users and therefore they're relying on them to make sure that they're feeding those ads appropriately to people who are going to be respond in, responding in the way they want them to respond. And if you think about Google's ecosystem, it's obviously search. Now, what's great about search is it's pure intent. So if you think about search, it's very contextual. 
chiropractor near me. That means I need a chiropractor. Near I, me. I, yeah, me too. Right. And when you go into the chiropractor, he will sell you a $2,000 package. Therefore, that keyword could be $150 or $250 in Singapore just buying that chiropractor keyword. So that funnel is, is pure conversion. It's quite rightly expensive. If you were to buy the, if you were to click on the Prada keyword in Singapore today, Prada gets billed $150. So expensive, but pure conversion. Now, that pure intent is very limited. It's right at the bottom of the funnel. And this is where Facebook comes in because Facebook is further up the funnel, but not pure conversion. I'm thinking about buying a Mercedes or I'm considering trading in my old car, or I'm thinking about what's the best promotion on my credit card. So that's where the Facebook ecosystem comes in very much of, I use a walled garden, not in a negative sense, but a environment whereby there's lots of profiles that you can access. And if you have a great AI technology, then you can utilize that platform. Well, that's where I want to go with this, Ian. So, so is it, if we go from the idea of like, um, the original idea of advertising, which is we, the advertising firm, have a sense of what will resonate with people. We're storytellers, and we believe more often than not, we're going to be able to create a campaign that helps connect people to your product. That was phase one. Yep. Phase two is um, we can now profile people who are responding well to whatever you're putting out in the market. We can make certain assumptions around you know, how, if we get, go to them with product B or product C, whether they will respond by clicking or not. But now we're moving into phase three, and phase three is really applying the aspects and the algorithms that come with artificial intelligence to not just make our best guess, but even predict buying behavior. Do I have that right? Absolutely. Yeah. So if we think about the Facebooks of the world, the Googles of the world, and let's think called a programmatic world, how you put banners onto websites, and you think about Amazon, for example, as a place, or Rakuten if you're in Japan. And then, of course, there's what you call in-app advertising. So all of this ecosystem is in place today. It exists. It's, it can be murky, it can be complicated, but at the end of the day, that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where you will place your piece of content or your ad to hit your targeted audience. Now, to reach that, to reach Google efficiently, to reach Facebook efficiently, to reach the programmatic ecosystem allows you to place an ad on CNN.com or Straight Times is the difficult part, right? And this is, this is what we're talking about today, is that if you think about, and this is going back to Sir Martin Sorrell when he took over WPP many years ago, he decided to have each of the agencies do a different thing. So we've got Ipsos or Kantar does the research. You have the JWTs and the Ogilvy's doing the creative, the big idea. And then you move over to the, the mind shares of the world, if you like, or the Group M of the world that does the media buying. So the idea there is WPP would be an umbrella for all aspects of the advertising value chain, come to any of them and they'll be able to serve you, but only in isolated, defined ways. And if you think about what they all did, so WPP is an example of a holding company based in London that split it up. You've got Omnicom, a holding company run by John Wren in New York. Uh, IPG, a smaller but more integrated company based in uh, based in New York as well, and then you have Publicis, which is the the French company holding company based in Paris, and essentially there's six holding companies around the world. Probably their market value is about eighty billion dollars. So combined, right, they are still much smaller than anybody from Google, anybody from Facebook. So 
And they play a very clearly defined role where they actually each broke up a different part of the marketing ecosystem. This is Inside Asia. I've been speaking with advertising industry disruptor Ian Chapman Banks. More in a moment. Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency, created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and best-selling author, Chris J. Reed. Black Marketing is an award-winning, independent, boutique, B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com. This is Steve Stein. I'm speaking with Ian Chapman Banks, founder and CEO of Scream. That's S-Q-R-E-E-M. He and his colleagues are targeting the U.S. $1 trillion global ad industry with the aid of artificial intelligence. In the second part of our conversation, we talk specifically about how AI algorithms can be designed and fused to reveal predictive patterns. It's a goldmine for any organization with a product or service to sell. Back to our conversation. Now tell us about your company. So giving this wonderful background, this, you've set the scene, and we're moving into this new era where we have data in ways we've never had data before. What's your thinking and what is your organization attempting to do? So we've worked backwards, uh, which is not intuitive, but it's the only way that could work, is that it's actually very simple in what we want to do. So let's use the word faster, better, cheaper. Let's think about what we call and what has been quoted in the press is the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity is this. Do you have data? Does that data lead you to very interesting content and messaging? Then, can you do the media buying and the media planning? This is kind of the Holy Trinity. If you cut everything else away, if you cut away the six holding companies that are $80 billion in value, if you cut away the 2,500 companies in the ad tech ecosystem, you're left with three things. Do I have data? Can I use that data to make great content that will resonate with my customers that has a great offer? And then have I got great media strategy, media planning, and the ability to buy the inventory? So you are a incumbent advertising agency's greatest nightmare. I have tried for five years to work with the advertising industry. And we've had great relationship with the Ogilvy's of the world and the BBDOs. But it, it really come down to, to one thing is that we built this AI engine. Actually, we built it for, for the US government, for the, for the intelligence services. It's called Signals Intelligence. You know, the NSA doesn't listen to every one of the 10 billion calls it feeds through its servers every day. It just, it just listens for context and content and repeatability of keywords and phrases in any language and that's called signals intelligence you pull the signals out of the data so our algorithm was built for the u.s intelligence services to pull signals out of huge amounts of data now as it happened the advertising digital ecosystem actually has more data publicly available on all the servers around the world than any government can actually process but you're applying the same philosophy to this. It's the same algorithm. It's a signals intelligence, time series based algorithm that fuses different data sets together and finds patterns. So an example would be um, electric car. 
Yes. How would that work? I mean, help me take, so if, if that's what you're pulling out and you're seeing a huge quantity of interest, how would you then apply your yeah. technology to, to, to cater to that? Let's think about North America, Tesla, three series. Right now, we can look at a country level in the US, and it could be in Hong Kong where Tesla's available, and also Japan, is that people looking for uh, Tesla specs, Tesla prices, how long does the battery last? What's the price compared to a Ford car or a Porsche or a BMW? Can you get an electric BMW car? Now, it's all around qualifying intent. So Ferrari in Singapore is the most visited website. It, has, it sells 27 cars a year. It's by far the highest traffic. And basically what's that? It's 18-year-old kids downloading the wallpaper <laughs> right on the phone or printing it to you know, put the Ferrari on, on, on their wall. So search and search volumes do not equate to intent. So you have to take everything else that's happening. So if you think about electric cars or think about Mercedes, so, you know, best Mercedes, that's not intent. If someone says, what's the specs in data? What's the specs in the Mercedes A series? What's the accessories? You have also at the same time, the wife or the girlfriend looking at the internal specs to get the baby basket in the car. You're now looking at what's the insurance? What's the trading value of my second car? Uh, how do I change my HDB parking voucher? Right? What do I do about, the, uh, about all the passes I need to get? So all of a sudden, it turns into a cluster. It's not binary. It's a cluster of intent that's happening at the same time, which indicates that not the person, we're never interested in the person, but there's a group of behaviors. It could be 30, 40,000 people in Singapore or in the US, in Tesla's case, 300,000 people are deciding which car to buy. And they are on the intent journey. And what we try and do is take that information, then intercept them at the earliest possible time using our digital ecosystem to serve them up an ad. And almost at that point of decision, you know when it's arriving at that because of the, the, the regularity and the patterning of data which is coming through the system. Let me give you a different example. I'm just working on this right now. So in New York, in Bronx, there is a woman. There's a group of women. There's about five million of these women in the U.S. right now today. Uh, she's about 42 to 45. She's got two kids, 8 and 11. She's a school teacher. We know that because we can see those behavioral patterns. Her life's been disrupted by the fact is she's just gone on to jobs.com and she's going on to jobs.com because her husband is a engineer in a silicon company or a manufacturing company and she's looking for his salary. Why is she doing that? At the very same time, she's searching for best divorce lawyer. So all of a sudden, she's about to go through a disruption. Now we know there's about 5 million women having this behavior in the US right now. And we know if we send them a piece of content in four weeks, nine o'clock on a Sunday night, that says, here's the five things you need to do uh, when you're going through your divorce, uh, why not talk to a independent financial advisor and he will help you through this disruption and how to better organize your life. Now, that particular moment with that piece of content outperforms anything else that we're doing in the life insurance industry. And that then tees up the, the, the purchase decision at that point. And that's the perfect commercial opportunity for anybody who's trying to specifically target their best buyers. It's all about disruption. So a bad disruption, U.S. government, we can look at people who are doing bad things, you know, bad guys, bad girls, bad hombres, as a, mm. a famous president says right now. Or we look for good intent that says, 
I'm about to buy something, or we look at a behavioral disruption such as I'm about to get divorced, my life's going to change dramatically, what are the five things I need to think about? Hmm. So actually what we're doing is that if you think about all of us together as behavioral groups, single, dating, uh, married, two kids, two kids, 13 to 18, as a population we tend to follow the same patterns in the behavioral groups. So we know at any one point in time, depending on your behavioral group, what are you going to do? So in other words, unfortunately, we are all predictable within our own little ecosystem. You know, if we live in Orchard Road, we spend most of our time around Orchard Road, we very, very rarely go up to, to Bishan. If you live in New York, it's very rarely that you'll go over to San Francisco and you'll, you'll walk to the same street cafe. You might go to you know, the Wall Street weekends for, for dinners or, or go to different restaurants, but essentially you'll do the same things. Mm. And the reason it's hard is it's complex. You can't have a human being to try and understand a human being. Our brains aren't big enough to be able to you know, understand why do you make the same mistake three or four times, right? Why, why do people get divorced three or four times, right? It's kind of the same mistake. So we are actually very repeatable in our behavioral patterns. You need a machine to decode human behavior to able understand human behavior. Therefore, if you understand human behavior, you can predict it because everything is predictable in what we do. So is your organization or any organization in AI made up of behavioral scientists, uh, coders, uh, engineers, uh, and mathematicians? Is that kind of the ultimate combination? So what we decided to do is not employ behavioral scientists mm -hmm. because they have their own frame of reference which could have its own bias. So what we decided to do is let the machine do all the decision making. Scary idea right there. It's truly terrifying, but what, we've, what I've realized is actually the machine is, uh, look, it, it doesn't think, right? We're not talking about cognitive artificial intelligence in the singularity kind of way. We're just saying when we feed it enough data, it will make a decision based on the data it gets. So all we have in our company, so let's say we have hundreds of clients across 40 countries, uh, multiple industries. Essentially what we have is 70 engineers. Basically, we're all coders, mathematicians, and physicists. None of us are from the marketing or the advertising industry. Nobody in our company has ever been in the ad industry. Not one. So, so, so let's now apply this in the thinking of, as we start out this conversation, the madman scenario. Client comes through the door, says, I've got a product. Help me understand how to create a story to sell that. In your organization and organization ad organizations of the future employing AI, what will that client engagement look like? What happens? Well, we're at an evolution in terms of how we think about this. So I've just come from a client this morning and I was, uh, I was talking about how can we sell motor cars in you know, a particular type of luxury vehicle. Now, I walked in the door and normally an agency would walk in, actually maybe four agencies would walk in, the research guys, the, uh, the content creation guys, the media planning guys, the digital guys, You'd, you may have 12 agency people in the room uh, and they would say, please give me a brief. And the, the client would then go and spend a couple hours giving a brief, they'd write it, they'd send it to them, they'd go, okay, now let's go and get some research, okay, good, okay, now, after five or six weeks, got the research to give it to the planning guy. The planning guy goes and thinks, oh, I could do a creative message here. And then a creative message comes out. And then based on that message, the media 
buying and planning guys, which are normally very different, will then say, this is where we need to place the media has the content. And a lot of this work is happening before the client even puts a dime down. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, scope of work, scope creep. So that, that on average, just to get to that stage is 12 weeks. Mm. So you come back in 12 weeks and you give the client, here's our wonderful big idea and here's how we're going to go to market. And there might be 100 people involved. So what did I do? I walked in this morning. I ran a particular model of car, let's say it was a, a particular series, and I built a cluster of people, actually females, interestingly enough, that were about to purchase this car because they fell into two groups. One was actually just about to start the family, and one was midlife because they now got enough money to afford this particular, you know, moderately luxury vehicle. And then what I did is I built the personas. What I mean, you built the personas? I, I built the types of people that are actually on the purchase journey. Hmm. So, so you basically gave them, um, you, you wrapped the data with something to personify what yeah. that buyer would look yeah. like. And then I sized it, there's 50,000 people right now in Singapore in these 10 different types of personas. So one's a white collar female whose husband is working in the insurance industry, has got just about to have a first child. And now for the very first time ever, she's, been, she's looking at car magazines. Very first time in life, you're looking at car magazines online to see how can she get all the baby paraphernalia into the car. And she's actually making the decision. Mm. Not her husband. She's saying, I want a very safe car. You go and get the financing. This is the one I want. Go get it. And that's an immediate insight for the client out of the gates, mm. even before. And their, their, their presumption might have been the man makes the buying decision. And I would never even think about enrapturing in, in or, or engaging the female or the, the partner. Absolutely. So the monster truck in the US is the Ford F1. It's the wife gives the guy the permission as a reward to go and get the F1. And this will be cultural place to place too, wouldn't it? I mean, every different society and community has its different buying behaviors and its different engagement models for how people make purchasing decisions. The work we did for BMW in India for the first time ever of Indian females are involved in the SUV buying process. At the very same time, they're looking for VIP holidays, opening jewelry shops, and going skiing in Europe, particularly snowboarding. So this combination is important? This combination of a persona is important. So all of a sudden, an SUV in India is decided by the females at the same time she's looking at holidays in Europe, at the same time she's looking for snowboarding for the kids, taking tennis lessons, and for the first time ever, the older Indian guy that would be buying the four-door sedan of the Mercedes, the BMW, and playing golf, that is now a minority of the audiences because it's the women who are deciding the purchase journey. So, so after this morning's meeting, you come in with these absolute credible right up front insights because you've been able to do the pre-work because you know that they're trying to sell cars. Yep. You can lay down uh, a thinking on that. What do, if they say, oh my God, Ian, this is like, the, I had no idea. Please execute on this. What do you do next? So what I said to them is I built the persona's life. I went into the ecosystem and found out what content they wanted, and I actually found the 15 different websites we should place an ad on, and also the, the Facebook parameters live. So I built it all. And then I said, give us your ad right now. So it's done. done. It's done. Everything's Finished. done. Finished. Yeah. I said, give me your ad right now, 11 o'clock. Give me $1,000 just to test it, and I will run it right now in front of you. They didn't have the ad ready, but essentially what, what, we, will, what we will absolutely do is, yes, that's what happens. 
Right. And so, and so, so after this thousand dollars comes just to test it, he's going to see the results. You can generate because it's all analytics. Yeah, it's all and on. then with that, then he will then hand you a contract. Is yeah, that all? Absolutely. It's always on. Yeah. In fact, a lot of time we don't even want a contract. So what do you want? We just say, just give us your media spend. Yeah. And you'll see it in real time with our performance tracking and metrics. You'll see how it's performing in data. So right now, after today's meeting, I said, give us your creative overnight. Let's sign the contract quickly. Let's link up our Facebook accounts. And by the way, we'll be, we, we'll be in the market tomorrow. So you've disintermediated a 12-week process, 100 people, different aspects of the media buying and media development process in order to show somebody within seconds what's possible. The only thing left for the ad agencies to do is create the actual ad. Absolutely, up until three weeks ago. Because? They were too slow. So we've actually built our own screen, if you call it, content creation factory. So actually, we've taught the engine. We actually did teach the engine this. We've taught the engine how to develop the content and how to write the message. And all we, all we do is just drop the content and the messaging into the client's template and give it back to them. Now, that is a human being has to do that, but we can service 60 to 100 clients a month because basically the engine is designing the content and the message. The message is, you know, go for a test drive right now and get a free Parker pen or whatever. We will understand what the message is. So in this world of disrupting, this is the atom bomb disruption moment. This can be applicable not just to advertising, to virtually any industry in the world as it exists today, right? So the very same platform we use with banks and governments to track money laundering. Mm. Because essentially, you don't wake up at 8 o'clock in the morning and decide to do money laundering. There is a behavioral change. There's a path to purchase. There's a path to go buying a KFC. There is a path to how I'm going to start money laundering. Why am I doing it? How am I doing it? So you will see a behavioral change in a person doing money laundering that's different to the normal population. So we call that the unknown unknowns. So as opposed to selling somebody something they want, that's the pattern for the other side of the business and when we do our work in kind of you know, terrorist financing and, and tracking terrorists is this is the anomaly. So we look for the anomalies and the intent around this. You just don't wake up in the morning deciding I'm going to build a bomb. There's 15 to 100 things that you do in data, like it or not, whether it's via a VPN or whether it's, whether it's via Tor or on the dark net, but that data is still accessible. You just need to know how to get it. So the one question that's obviously lurking in the back of my mind, and I'm sure in the listener's mind, is this can be used for good reasons and good purposes and evil purposes. If you have a despot government that really wants to monitor its, its, its people, um, they, in theory, could hire you or any other AI organization to deploy. What do you do about this when you get these requests to do things which you find to verge on the unethical or even the torrid? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we only work for multinationals. And in the... Is, is that a judgment in and of itself? Are you saying that because they have certain set of criteria that you believe um, we, they will de facto safeguard the interests of consumers? Well, it's, it's verifiable, right? How so, do you mean that? Uh, verifiable mean, you know, we've got clients like GSK. So it's an established company that want to sell products, real products that exist that are available in the market. We only work for, in our world, uh, we only work for the US government, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody else. We will not entertain. We don't work for political parties in any country in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, the big challenge that, that we all have, it's uh, cybersecurity. Uh, let's use the word fake news, very, very overblown, and ad fraud. What, right. What's overblown? Uh, the, 
the concept of fake news in terms of we're all talking about it, but it's very difficult to know whether it's fake news or not. Right, so you have to be able to tell that. So what we do is that we can detect fake news because fake news tends to have a abnormal rhythm to it. If you're on Twitter and somebody's uh, tweeting fake news, it's very, it has a particular pattern. It's almost mechanized and the engine can pick out those patterns. Uh, and if we think about ad fraud, we are one of the very few companies that can detect ad fraud. Now, the reason why that's good for us is that what we only buy real audiences. Mm. So that's the reason why we will actually always outperform any advertising industry or every, any, any ad company. Just assume our performance is the same. If we don't buy uh, basically uh, uh, bots, then we will automatically outperform them. It's very hard to detect bots, but because we're going deep into the ecosystem, our engine is able to see that mechanized bot clicking on the websites. So it's a verification tool as well? Absolutely, 100% verification. We have trackers in the ads. We have trackers on, on, the, on the client's website. And it actually, if you have Google Analytics, all you have to do is go into your own Google Analytics and look at the bounce rate. If your bounce rate means somebody goes on the website and bounces off you know, almost immediately, it's fake, it's mm. a bot. Mm. I would say that on average, 40 to 50% of everybody's traffic is, is fake. What does this mean for traditional industries, for the incumbents out there in all these different sectors? What is your advice to them or, or to anybody who's thinking or planning on working with them? I would say that adopt the journey as fast as you can. I mean, this is, let's call it digital transformation, however you want to package it. We all have to learn how to live, exist in the digital world. The sooner you start the journey in the digital transformation, no matter how small or what step, it doesn't have to be AI, it can be you know, automated Excel spreadsheets, for example, you know, using automated buying, using you know, digital data to make decisions. As soon as that happens, the better it's going to be, right, for everybody. Now, the reason I mentioned multinationals is that most multinationals are at some stage on the digital transformation journey, which means I have a product, I have to sell it to somebody, how do I use digital technology to reach them as opposed to the traditional sales force of insurance, right? The, other, the life insurance companies work on agents. Agent gets anything up to 70% of the commission of that premium for three years. Therefore, the insurance, the insurance companies will only make money year four, year five onwards. If they could digitally convert somebody for life insurance, and by the way, you don't need, for less than a million dollar life insurance, you don't need any medical tests. Mm. All of a sudden, they become incredibly profitable. Mm. So, so what, how are you then, um, what, what are some of the concerns that you have for your business and the future of your industry? What will stand in your way? What barriers exist for you? I think the challenge is twofold. We started trying to work with the, call it the advertising ecosystem, and that clearly hasn't worked. And, uh, because they're afraid of it or because they don't know how to absorb it? They don't know how to absorb it. Uh, maybe they are afraid of it. I don't know. I mean, you know, you've got a lot of very senior guys, you know, over the age of 40 that have never been involved in this world before. It's, it's hard, right? It's challenging. If you don't come up from a science background, you know, and you're over 40, it's very hard to conceptualize what you need to do. Now, the, the, the challenge is, is that what we've decided to do, and actually, if you think about what, what Martin Sorrell's doing, and he's in, uh, in Singapore this week to, to launch S4 Capital, is that he's now taken the same approach. He's only digital. He's gone from, you know, WPP, 250,000 people globally, and he's now gone to S4 Capital, which is basically, say, 300 people, revenues 80 million, and all he's doing is three things, getting first-party data from clients, content creation, media buying, and planning. He started off in the ad world, he's going directly to clients, because the agencies, it's not a question of, it's not a question of trying to 
not work quick enough is that the clients feel suffocated because they have so many people congregating on them. They feel stifled by the, by the agency because there's so many touch points and so many people touching them. I find such deep irony in that. I mean, this man is synonymous yeah. with advertising. He is the icon of what advertising and great advertising look like. And yet he's turning his back on everything. It must feel like betrayal for many of his former <laughs> colleagues. I mean, I, I, I don't know, but actually I listened to him a few times. Actually, his strategy is what we've been doing for three years, except we don't have the gravitas of Sir Martin Sorrell. We, do, we don't have his contacts. But what he has, if you like, justified our strategy of pure digital, go into clients, build every part of the system myself. We own it. We do it. And we don't have to hand off to 15 or 16 other different companies in the holding company or in worst cases, you know, Omnicom. Omnicom win the media pitch and the Ogilvy wins the creative pitch and Ipsos wins the, the insights pitch and you've got three different holding groups working with the same clients. I mean, it's, uh, it's rough. <laughs> so Ian, uh, we're going to be checking back with you and, and about a year or two years from now, you're either going to be locked up in some dark cell in the gulag yep. or you'll be our next billionaire. Yep. I don't know which. Uh, or in the mental asylum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the third option, the padded room. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you for taking time explaining this extremely uh, convoluted industry to us and for breaking it down. We wish you all the best. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. That was my conversation with co-founder and CEO of Scream, an AI-enabled ad tech company working to take on the U.S. $1 trillion global advertising business. It's no easy feat to entirely unwind an industry ecosystem, but that's what Ian and dozens of ad tech entrepreneurs around the world are trying to do. As he rightly points out, the playing field has shifted. Advertising goes where consumer eyeballs roam. And in this case, digital platforms are the place where consumer buying decisions are taking place. Partly because that's where most of us absorb the lion's share of news entertainment, but also because the digital universe allows for a kind of precision marketing that's only possible in a world packed with big data and consumer insights. So it is in this week's Asia Insider Minute that I contemplate the conversation you just heard and ponder what it means for an industry and for billions of consumers who, whether they know it or not, are the subject of prowling bots and advanced AI algorithms that observe and interpret one's every move. Progress comes with sacrifice, and in the case of AI-enabled advertising, there are two primary victims. First, the thousands of ad industry professionals who see their future in ruins, and second, the consumer, who knowingly or not is walking through a marketplace labyrinth controlled by a minotaur who goes by the name of AI. First, the industry. In 2017, digital ad spend surpassed TV ad spend globally for the first time, with Google and Facebook receiving the lion's share of advertising dollars and Amazon coming in third. China's Baidu, Sogo, and WeChat are on a tear as well, soaking up large shares of corporate ad spend in China and beyond. So why is this bad news for the advertising business? Because for decades, the industry has placed a premium on serving corporate clients with idea generation, ad campaign coordination, ad rate management, and public relations support. To deliver a well-thought-out and coordinated advertising effort on behalf of a multinational meant mobilizing hundreds, if not thousands, of ad industry specialists from creative directors to copy editors. Demand from corporates nurtured countless advertising careers. 
Planning and delivering ads was, and still is, a complex and time-consuming endeavor. Measuring the results of these efforts was more a matter of art than science. More often than not, corporations trusted and relied on their advertising partners to show them the way, and fingers crossed, see the results in the form of increased sales or improved brand awareness. If you've watched an episode or two of the popular TV series Mad Men, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, then just imagine this. For decades, the ad agency was to the corporation what a court jester was to the sovereign of a feudal state. Advertisers held the unique position of trusted advisor and chief storyteller. Corporations, like kings, wanted to know that all was well in the kingdom, that successful sales campaigns and bigger profits were all possible if blessed by the magic of marketeers. That was then. Today, ad agencies are increasingly at risk. Rather than flowing through Madison Avenue, funds flow past them and straight to the coffers of digital warlords like Facebook and Google. It's an empirical world, and that's what digital platforms offer, data and measurable results. Not surprisingly, it's left the industry in shambles. Margins have collapsed, agencies have downsized, and the once vaunted gurus of Madison Avenue have fallen from grace, taken a knee, and now assume the title of vendor as opposed to trusted advisor. Not to kick an industry when it's down, but now comes the latest and potentially most devastating wave of disruption, and it goes by the name of artificial intelligence. As my guest this episode explains, with the power of AI, all traditional methods of planning and delivering an ad campaign are out the door. Indeed, Ian is bent on bringing the advertising industry to its knees. He and his 70 employees, so he claims, can do what tens of thousands of traditional advertisers can do in a fraction of the time and a sliver of the cost. Those are fighting words to the ad industry, and many will claim that without the creative and human touch, companies will fail to deliver thoughtful and cohesive messages to the marketplace over time. Others argue that real-time, data-driven insights are the kryptonite for a new era of identifying, targeting, and appealing to buying behavior in surgical fashion. Which brings me to the consumer. You and me, that is. When Ian talks about human psychology and predictive behavior, I don't know about you, but I start to feel a little uncomfortable. AI as an advertising tool is like a blood-borne peeping Tom roving around our personal ecosystems, gathering data on the slide and placing markers in our brains, gently guiding us to bind decisions that we are wholly unaware of. For the veteran and habitual consumer, maybe it's no big deal. But for waves of next-generation consumers who've cottoned on to the power of digital technology, it's no surprise that minimalism, not consumerism, is suddenly in fashion. Like Nancy Reagan in her Just Say No to Drugs campaign in the mid-1980s, millions of young would-be consumers are rejecting the idea of digital bots let loose on their digital lives. Instead, they're starting to just say no to consumption. Then what, my capitalist friends? Should this trickle trend turn into a tsunami of mainstream behavior, not even the AI mavens of a new advertising model will be able to survive in a world where consumption declines and corporations falter. Now we're talking about disruption on a whole new level. So grab your boots or your bots, as the case may be, and prepare for a madman episode like nothing you've ever seen. We at Inside Asia take a shine to disruptor stories. In months past, we've explored how digital disruption is upending all kinds of industries, from healthcare to media. Check out my conversation with Rosalind Koo on the future of health insurance, or my discussion with David Goldstein on media streaming and its impact on pay TV. Listen to advertising executive and behavioral psychologist Chris Graves as he unpacks the neuroscience of persuasion.
There's so much more where this came from, so please do log on to www.insideasiapodcast.com or subscribe by visiting iTunes or Stitcher. Search for Inside Asia, flick the subscribe button, and start listening. It's completely free, and we'd hate for you to miss out on future episodes. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency, created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and best-selling author, Chris J. Reed. Black Marketing is an award-winning, independent, boutique, B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com.